This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This panel is called Connecting the Dots, and what we're going to do here is connect the dots linking food systems, obesity, and food insecurity locally and globally. Um, so I'd like to welcome back to our panel Dr. Kelly Brownell, Dean of the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke, Dr. Laura Schmidt, Professor of Health Policy in the School of Medicine at UCSF, Allison Korn, who's the uh, Assistant Dean for Experiential Education at UCLA Law, and Brianna Hawkins, who I'd like to welcome for the first time today that you've seen her, um, who is a Policy Director for the Los Angeles Food Policy Council. And remember also that there are detailed bios on the website for all of these people. So, uh, and I am, oh, I didn't mean to do that, but that's okay. You'll enjoy looking at this for the second. Um, I am Emily Aguirre. I am a lawyer and also a PhD student um, at Harvard. And in my work, I focus on innovation in the food sector and healthy food companies and how we think about scaling up good, um, social good in terms of health. So in thinking about these questions and in reflecting on all I've heard today, I want to zoom out our attention on this panel to start to think about the global aspects of these problems and focus on the solutions that we can bring to bear so that we end the day on a kind of uh, solution-oriented note. So a lot that we've been talking about today has been at the local level, the individual level, the science, and it's really important to remember the big picture here and to connect our conference to the broader sweep of what's going on in the world. Um, and also to make sure that we're making explicit this link between food insecurity and obesity and the people who are poor in the US um, and around the world are more likely to be obese for a variety of reasons, many of which we've heard about today. So, the big picture here is that our food system is really, is really distorted. Um, what we see going on in local communities translates globally. So um, the world is unfortunately getting, if you didn't hear any of that, don't worry, I won't repeat it, but <laughs> it was all, you can catch up. Um, the world is getting fatter and fatter and unhealthier and unhealthier. So we're gonna um, not do that. We're going to, to play this. I'm not sure how to right-click on a Mac. Um, while I get technical, no? Okay. Well, there was a cool video that was embedded here that we were going to watch the world get fat in. Um, but you can just take my word for it that all of these countries, so this is 1991, all of these countries, a lot of them are going to turn red and purple up till 2014. Um, so you'll just have to imagine that. Um, but this brings me to my first question, which is that there are more now overweight and obese people in the world than people of normal weight. Um, and a lot of people actually are malnourished while being obese. So in Brazil, for example, 6% of children are malnourished and obese at the same time. That's a really remarkable figure. And um, these rates are happening faster and faster in developing and emerging economies than they are in the Western world now. So basically, we have this complex mess globally of food insecurity and poor diet and obesity and chronic disease, and the developing world is following in our footsteps. And so my first question for the panel is, why and how is this happening? Why are these troubling trends happening globally, and what are some really novel strategies that we can use to address this? Um, so we'll turn to you, Kelly, first, if you want to give us some, some insights onto why this trend is happening. Well, the, the trend... Um of increasing obesity around the world I think is pretty clear as, as the practices that we see have seen in the United States get replicated elsewhere. 
um, erosion of local food norms, uh, increasing presence of the multinational food companies, uh, aggressive food marketing practices, uh, more fast food, uh, increasing incentives to buy large portion sizes. One thing after another has changed, and so the food norms have changed a lot. You know, if I think back to when I was a boy, uh, nobody ate in their car, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, nobody would eat after dinner time, and now there are fast food industries that are marketing that fourth meal between dinner and breakfast. And so that the norms have changed in the United States, a very predictable set of consequences have occurred, and that's being replicated around the world. And so one of the protective mechanisms is to try to, for these, these places around the world, to protect local food cultures and to protect what was happening originally in their food supply but unfortunately, the, the marching ahead of the, the food industry, um, making progress in these emerging markets, as they're called euphemistically, um, is, is making it very hard to do that. A few countries have tried to do it, and I think are making some progress, but it's not easy. The country that gets held up most often about making progress is Brazil, but then you briefly showed that article in the New York Times that said that Nestle and the other big food companies are making such inroads into Brazil, it's hard to, hard to defend the, what used to occur. Great. Laura? Uh, yeah, just to uh, follow up on that, um, I think it's very easy to get into blaming one side of the equation, and industry is often, the food and beverage industries are often the go-to uh, part of the problem. But I think, uh, I, I think about this as more of a problem situated in the interactions between uh, the food and beverage industries and our institutions of governance, our public um, sector and our governments, and the ways in which um, we have a very uh, imbalanced political arena. We have food and beverage corporations that are very powerful politically and economically, and at the same time we have governments that are very much driven by uh, either, uh, at the, especially at the global level, uh, very weak institutions of global governance, and uh, those that we have are often driven by a, a free market ideology. Uh, and as a result of that, we are seeing the incursion of corporations into emerging markets uh, in Africa, Asia, and uh, Latin America in particular, and there are two uh, consequences for that. Uh, first is, as Kelly alluded to, the eradication of traditional diets. And here, there's a, a deliberate attempt on the, in the marketing infrastructure of many of these companies to encourage the consumption of uh, hyper-palatable and processed foods uh, instead of the traditional diet. And so right there, regulatory solutions would be possible if our institutions in the government institutions were powerful and, 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 uh, and wanted to see those kinds of changes happening. Uh, and then the second phenomenon has to do with uh, local farming and the changes that go on in the food systems as these companies uh, gain traction. In particular, the move from subsistence crop crops to cash crops, namely sugar, corn, and soybeans, the things that are the main, dietary, the main constituents of, 
uh, processed foods. And of course, a lot of this is being driven uh, very much like what we saw with tobacco. As consumption in the U.S. goes down, uh, the problem is is exported overseas and in, into these more vulnerable developing uh, 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 countries. And so, for example, in we've seen a, a 25% decline in uh, sugary beverage consumption uh, since its peak in the late 90s in the U.S. Uh, at the same time, we've seen a doubling of sugary beverage sales in Latin America since 2000. So that right there, that's an indication of the extent to which we are exporting the problem. So, Brianna and Allison, what can we do to try to combat some of these things? And we'll start with you, Brianna. Tell us what you do at LA Food Policy Council and, and how we can start to think about tackling these problems that we've now seen are very severe. Definitely. So the LA Food Policy Council is a collective impact initiative working to make good food accessible for all. And we define good food as food that is healthy, sustainable, affordable, and fair. We focus our work in the LA region, which is really a paradox as it lies in the heart of the largest food producing region in the country, yet it also has the highest population of food insecure people in the country. Um, And so we try to address some of these complex challenges through bringing the farmers and um, the business owners and the healthcare professionals and impacted community residents and small business owners all to the same table to develop comprehensive solutions for addressing these problems. Um, One of the things that got mentioned today was thinking about traditional foodways as well as local food production. And those are two of the mechanisms that we try to promote in our work as well, um, promoting food sovereignty um, and going back to ancestral foodways instead of the the multinational industrial food complex that a lot of us have grown accustomed to, um, and also promoting people to grow their own food and um, not being dependent on the multinational corporations that are uh, agglomerating and uh, acquiring and basically overcoming a lot of the small and mid-sized farmers and uh, really empowering local communities to to take land wherever they can and and grow the food that they feel um, and know can be more substantive for their health. Great, thanks. Allison, what are you doing at the law school? What is experiential education and clinical education and how can that be a tool that we can use? Um, Well, a law clinic, especially a live client law clinic, has a couple of goals and a couple of strategies that it uses to meet its goals. Um, The first is that we want students, law students, to be trained to be zealous, competent advocates. We want to give them the skills they need to be lawyers and policy advocates out in the real world. We want to give them the chance to understand what that feels like, but also to be able to learn it in a a safe space. Uh, So we have a seminar um, that is guided toward uh, students developing some of these lawyering and advocacy skills, whether that's interviewing and counseling, whether that's uh, looking at fact investigation and uh, data research, community-based research, and also oral and written advocacy in a number of um, policy-related situations that could be offering public comment, that could be providing oral testimony, or even organizing around social media campaigns. But the second part of a clinic is uh, very crucial, and that is providing students the opportunities to play 
uniquely in the role of student advocate in the outside. Students uh, pr- uh, partner with clients or project partners, be they individuals, organizations, or constituencies, who otherwise would not be able to have the resources to gather um, uh, robust legal services. Um, so students are able to actually take on the role of advocate in a real-world setting. And distinguished from an externship or an internship situation where students are getting a a list of discrete tasks or research questions from a supervisor, students are truly in the driver's seat. They are learning how to advocacy plan and they're learning how to execute those plans to actually create and implement a policy intervention. So one of the real goals of the clinic that I have is helping students, law students especially, understand the many roles that they can play as advocate. Uh, Lawyers are often seen as problem solvers, and I think that's certainly true, but I try to help students understand that they are not charged with going into a community or into a lawyering uh, event or activity and suggesting a one-size-fits-all answer or suggesting that they have all of the expertise. Rather, I ask them to um, gather perspective from all stakeholders, and especially those individuals and communities who are impacted by the policies that people in power um, put on us locally, nationally, and globally. So as an example, just for how we execute some of this problem-solving in action and practice this type of client-centered advocacy... Last semester, students worked uh, on a project with a national advocacy group to try and introduce more plant-based options into national school meals programs. Uh, What students thought initially is that they would be looking at the federal funding uh, paradigm. They would be sort of identifying what makes it tick. They would be making it into more accessible language for the stakeholders to understand. And essentially, they would come out with a policy paper or a roadmap that school food services directors would be able to use to incorporate more plant-based options. And that was certainly part of it. But when students went into the communities and started talking with food services directors, it became very clear to them that they also had to speak with dietitians and nurses and public health advocates uh, and others in the field. And what they learned is that it wasn't so much that food services directors were thinking that they needed to struggle with obstacles that federal funding strategies were presenting, but rather they had to look at the messaging and and, uh, increase buy-in from students and parents. They had to understand um, what made school meals healthy and how they could have more local participation in their procurement strategies. They had to learn from all of these stakeholders not just what the legal and policy obstacles were, but what those non-legal goals might be and what are the ways in which they could create a roadmap that includes all of these voices. So I think that when it comes to solutions, we have to, um, in all of our disciplines, understand how collaboration and including all of these community voices, especially those who aren't often heard, uh, we have to understand how that's necessary to create a truly comprehensive policy framework. Great. And I want to circle back now to something that both Laura and Kelly mentioned earlier, which is um, the multinational companies in developing countries and um, a couple images here. So this is a picture that Kelly referenced before. It shows a um, Brazilian woman, direct saleswoman in a slum in Brazil and she is selling Nestle here around the local, in the local community. Um, And and then we have a couple of things here from the Coke website. These are from Coke's actual own uh, promotional materials showing their outreach in Africa and and how great it is and how it's um, 
it's a win-win for everyone. Um, and I'll come back to these, don't worry. But, um, and then here's another one showing the impacts on female entrepreneurs. And these are directly from the Coke website. So my question here is, um, what is the impact of these large multinational companies? In their words, they are helping the <coughs> women in these communities and they're lifting up people in extreme poverty who are starving. They're giving them empowerment and jobs and calories and it's, this is a wonderful model. Um, are they combating food insecurity? Is this the right pattern of development? What's, who do we believe and what's going on here? So my, my take on this is that the companies need to be held accountable for what they're doing outside the U.S. And as Laura alluded to, um, they're very much like the tobacco companies in that um, they were, they're trying to stall as much as they can public policy things in the U.S. that will hurt their sales while they're developing these markets outside the U.S. And, you know, it, so with, with Coca-Cola or McDonald's or any of these companies in these other countries, most of these companies have a range of foods that they sell that, that go from more healthy to less healthy. Uh, and what they need to be held accountable for is the fact that they're pushing their least healthy products. At least that's what the data suggests thus far. It hasn't been studied very much, but that's the anecdote, and it's also what, what the data seem to suggest. So if Coca-Cola or Pepsi or any of the other companies were selling their lower calorie versions of things, mm -hmm. or perhaps even their diet versions of things, although that gets to be pretty controversial itself, uh, then they may be creating less harm than if they're selling full calorie versions of things. Now my own belief is that they're, it's in their best interest to sell the full calorie versions of things uh, for two reasons. One is that they're most palatable. Uh, and second, the, the sugar is hijacking the brain and you're creating a, some addictive process that makes people want to come back for more. So to me, that's where they're most vulnerable in terms of public relations. And so if they can get called out for what they're doing, both in the U.S. and in the countries where they're engaging in these practices, I think that could be helpful. Yeah, I, I, I just want to follow up on that. Um, the, again, these... Uh, the executives that run these companies are doing their jobs, which is to increase shareholder value. That's what executives do. Um, the, I'm not letting them off the hook <laughs> because there is something called social uh, corporate social responsibility. Uh, and that is uh, something that these campaigns are all about. Uh, corporate social responsibility, the idea, and this is a, a big movement within uh, the uh, corporate world as companies are being held more and more accountable for the impacts of their products on health, human health, as well as the environment, to in various ways invoke CSR uh, to essentially uh, uh, whitewash what they're up to. And this is, I think, a key place where there, there is uh, some capacity to call them out. And a, a good example of this would be uh, Coca-Cola and its current campaign to promote water, clean water access in Africa, in parts of Africa. And the, essentially the problem with, if you read uh, Citizen Coke, which is a wonderful history of this company, what you'll understand is that from the very get-go in the late 19th century, the business model for Coca-Cola is not to sell Coke, like what we're used to in the cans and bottles and, and at the fountain. It's to sell syrup that makes Coke. 
So where does the water come from? The water comes from municipal water supplies. So this is a big problem for this company, right? Their business model is based on the idea that they're going to get free water and somebody else, ideally, if they can swing it, is going to bottle this stuff, not them. Uh, sometimes they franchise their bottlers. Sometimes they, they even own them in, on occasion. But, but so their business model is fundamentally uh, challenged by this issue of water. And as water becomes more and more of a scarce commodity, uh, especially in the developing world, especially in parts of, say, uh, India, for example, where six different plants have been closed down because farmers in the surrounding regions around Coca-Cola plants have gone belly up because they ran out of water, you really, increasingly, we're starting to see this company come under the gun. And so what's it going to do? It's going to stall, as Kelly pointed out, by uh, for now, by uh, leveraging off of uh, images, women's empowerment, showing, you know, if you go on their website, showing African women carrying water, and uh, it's all about clean water. Um, And so this is a place where I think uh, these companies are moving beyond uh, what would be considered just strictly uh, biz- good business practices and into areas where they're really covering up uh, for big problems that they've got and where they are vulnerable. And Brianna, can you tell us a little bit about multinational companies in the L.A. area and, and building off of what Laura said, if there's any water implications that you can tie in there, we'd love to hear about that. How is this playing out locally as well? Sure. Well, one of the great things about the good food movement is that, you know, we don't separate the nutrition benefits from the economic benefits of the food system. Um, We really promote policies and strategies that uphold economic opportunities that also provide nutrition benefits for communities. And so um, while multinational corporations definitely play a significant role in our local food system, we've really seen that the economic opportunities among smaller, mid-sized businesses have an opportunity to really lift people out of poverty as well as provide better um, job opportunities for people that are uh, oftentimes working class or low income. Um, one example that I can provide is promoting entrepreneurship through our Healthy Neighborhood Market Program, where we've been able to build the capacity of smaller um, corner store owners to be able to sell healthy food options, increasing healthy food access, while also potentially expanding their customer base by having a more diversified product inventory. Uh, we also are working on a campaign to legalize street food vending in, this, in the city of Los Angeles. Right now, it is currently not legal, and while all the food, opportun- the food options aren't necessarily the healthy is we've been pairing our um, advocacy with a healthy food cart program similar to that uh, in New York City that would incentivize street vendors to sell healthier food options and get into those communities that have limited access to healthy food. So I think uh, focusing on entrepreneurship and focusing on building the capacity of those most impacted by our broken food system to create their own solutions and own economic opportunities and identify where there's uh, an unmet market demand and how they can fill those solutions. We found that that's the best opportunity to create benefits um, both economically and from a nutritional standpoint. Allison, how about in your work? 
Um, well, I think it's really interesting to think about this idea of um, power, not just over um, economic markets, but also over natural resources, like water, for example. Um, and in my work, you know, I'm reminded of uh, a project that I conducted with a, a number of law students in the Mississippi Delta communities. And the goal of this project was to engage those communities to determine what legal services they might need, particularly in the food policy space, um, to... Um, to help grow their communities and, and make them more economically viable. Now, my students, in preparing for this project, um, they studied a number of, uh, of texts regarding the history of the Mississippi Delta. They learned from sociologists how to conduct focus groups and uh, surveys and questionnaires. But they, then they started brainstorming before they interacted with community members about what legal services they might be able to imagine. And most of those included, let's put together a farmer's market, let's put together a CSA program or a food truck, or let's, let's create a movement to bring a Kroger or a Walmart to these communities. Most of them were, how, how do we create a, a broader, more robust economic stream? But what they learned when they conducted their community research was that community members were not interested in selling what they grew or selling what they produced or what they cooked. Rather, they had put together this very sophisticated barter network where they were able to exchange and share natural resources in order to feed their families and survive. And so um, I, I think that this is sort of... Uh, mm -hmm. uh, similar um, to, uh, to what's happening in, in the global context, which is that we don't necessarily think about food policy uh, as, as promoting subsistence activities or um, allowing the public um, or private land ownership paradigm to shift so that there is power for vulnerable communities in being able to farm land and being able to grow and being able to um, subsist and participate in these activities that help feed their families. And so, you know, from a legal and policy standpoint, I think that there are a number of, of solutions that we can think about. And, and at the smaller level, we can think about supporting worker cooperatives, supporting ways in which uh, small farmers and growers can begin to share equipment can begin to share harvests, can begin to participate in market activities, sure, but also be able to share um, uh, on this barter network and, and expand it quite a lot. We can also think about land trusts um, and being able to um, pull levers where they exist for the government to allow natural resources to flow more freely in through these vulnerable communities. And then, you know, broader speaking, I think, and, and I will preface this by saying I am not an international human rights attorney, but I do think that there are particular covenants that we can look at from a global perspective to suggest that it is the responsibility of certain governments and states to protect the right to food, and again, not the right to be fed, but the right to feed one's family, um, the, the cultural right. Um, to protect some of these subsistence activities, some of these ancestral activities, some of these traditional food ways that are so important, and also the, the human right to um, civil and, and political rights and political expression. So in the Mississippi Delta, for example, where much of the land ownership and natural resources distribution has relied on uh, white 
ownership and white owners' permissions. Uh, there is a political and civil right to be able to feed one's family, to be able to subsist, to be able to potentially take back land that was rightfully uh, uh, sharecroppers' families or otherwise. So I do think that there are some legal and policy levers that can be pulled, but I think we have to think really creatively about where the power is and how we can begin to shift it so that subsistence ac- uh, activities, in addition to these market activities, um, uh, can present viable opportunities to feed oneself and one's family. Thanks. That's a great segue into my last question, which is, um, what needs to happen here from a social movement perspective? How do we make these issues burning issues that are on people's radars, and what can people do, especially here or el- anywhere, to get involved? Um, and this is, don't worry, my last question. So uh, maybe we'll start with you, Kelly. You know, I was I was uh, reflecting on something as you were asking that question, and um, I, I think there are a lot of interesting social things occurring, and I think just looking at the work of the people on the panel is an example of that. Um, you know, Emily, if you look at your own work and the work going on at the law clinic at, at UCLA, similar clinics at Yale and, and at the one at Duke, and, uh, you know, a lot of universities have these now. That's a pretty recent phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a time those of us working in the obesity field had no contact with people in law at all because the law people just weren't that interested. Now they, now they really are, and it's a tremendous boost to the field. Economists are the same way. There was a long time when economists weren't paying attention to this issue, and now they are, and that's been a big boost to the field. Look at food policy councils. Those are a pretty recent phenomenon as well, but they're a sign of the changing times. They're a sign that communities care about these issues. They're a sign that people care about the story of their food. Uh, it's a sign about food justice, social justice, inequality, and things like that are all woven into this picture. And people care about those things now. There's the high-end version of this. You can't, it's hard to go in a restaurant now and not see the names of the farmers on a chalkboard on the wall. Uh, that's because people care about the story of their food. But there's a much more real, tangible impact of that when people care about in, in communities uh, where the food comes from, the vitality of the farmers who are growing the food the carbon footprint of the food being produced. All those things are now just part of common language and people are talking about these more and more. So I think that makes for a very positive trajectory. There are setbacks, you know, the soda tax gets repealed in Chicago. Uh, The multinational companies in Brazil are making inroads and things like that. But I think the trajectory overall is very positive. And the more we can get the public to be attending to the story of their food, then I think all these other issues start to come into focus. Uh, You know, it it was once the case in the United States that food production uh, all occurred behind this curtain that nobody peeked behind and nobody cared about the the people who who were brought in to harvest the food. They weren't concerned about the impact on the water supply, uh, antibiotic resistance, one issue after another. But now that curtain is being pulled back fully and a lot of players are trying to work on that. And I think that argues for a very bright future. So I see the trajectory is very positive. And these social movements are occurring. And I think the more we can bring attention to them, build them, especially local food movements, I think are very important in the U.S., um, I think the, the better off we'll be. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about the way things are moving. Great. Well, if you're op- optimistic, then I guess the rest of us should be too. Laura? Yeah. So um, a slightly different take on this. Um, I'm a sociologist, and that makes me a student of social change. And uh, my understanding of how things change uh, is that nothing ever happens without 
social movements, without grassroots mobilization, uh, as we talk about mobilization and pressure from below, meaning from the bottom up. That's what makes, galvanizes people in positions of power to actually make change happen. And if you look around, uh, and the, the other thing that I know from studying the history of social change is that historically in the Western world, food riots were the, one of the uh, movers and shakers in the history of revolutions. When people get really hungry and really thirsty, they make stuff happen. They organize and they make stuff happen because that's when it hits home. So if you look around the world today and you, and you, and you uh, consider where are, where are there uh, populations that are really getting to the point of desperation. I see uh, people in sub-Saharan Africa. I see uh, refugee populations, which are continuously on the move and constantly facing intense food insecurity as well as other forms of insecurity. So these are, um, on the one hand, tragedies. On the other hand, these are populations that really uh, are, if nothing else, showing the rest of us how bad it can get. And that's where I think the, the uh, people like you and you uh, and uh, who are really in a position to organize and uh, prom- promote uh, connections between obesity and food insecurity, right? Can, uh, food quality, water, as, as issues, as human rights, as you point out, that's where we're really going to start to see populations rising up and saying, we can't, we can't take this anymore. And I think in the U.S., we're very um, uh, privileged to have such a, uh, a, a historical legacy of activism. Uh, you get outside of the U.S., and it's, it's surprising <laughs> you, you start to really appreciate how unique we are as a society founded on the civil rights movement and, and many other women's rights and many other issues. And it's a real, uh, we, we owe it to the rest of the world to take what we know about social movements and export that, that to the places where these uh, human crises are occurring. And that may mean things like uh, uh, legal clinics as a concept uh, becoming part of uh, Academics Without Borders, right? An organization that's designed to take models from uh, the Western uh, countries, uh, from academia, and, and pro- voluntarily provide those resources to uh, people in the developing world. It definitely takes a comprehensive movement, an intersectional movement, an international movement focused on the same issue around transforming the food system and really shifting power, as Allison brought up. Uh, We've seen a shift of power in Los Angeles um, locally just by promoting participatory policymaking um, in developing solutions for addressing change, involving those most impacted by the broken food by a broken food system and developing those solutions is so critical to the success of any tri- type of 
strategy that one wants to implement. Just supplanting something that works somewhere else in a new context, I don't think is the right strategy. They have to be tailored to the unique dynamics of the communities in which they're located. And so um, having the involvement of people who are expertise, who have expertise in their own experience, that have expertise in their own, um, in, the, in the ways in which the food system has impacted them, I think is critical to the success. Uh, we've done that by, through our working groups, we have seven active working groups that focus on different issues around the food system from urban agriculture to food waste to farmers markets. Um, and we have both organizations and public sector departments as well as in individuals, which we affectionately call concerned citizens at the table, developing policy solutions to address those needs. And we've seen that those policy solutions have a greater impact and, and, and a greater opportunity to be advanced because of the fact that be, when, when we involved people most impacted, we're less likely to have opposition on, on the backside. But then also, um, those are votes. Those are concerned constituents of elected officials that they want to please. And so it does create power and it does create an opportunity to affect transformative change. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.